the history of personal computing. History, history, history. History of Personal Computing. Hi, all, and after only a week, welcome back to another installment of the History of Personal Computing podcast. Last show was a special edition all about the Vintage Computer Festival East, and with this show, we're back to regularly scheduled broadcasting, though it's going to be a shorter one. It's show 16, and today we're covering two systems the Tandy Radio Shack TRS 80 color computer and the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. Two computers, worlds apart, yet similar in their audience, price points, and general success. I'm David Grillish, and I'm your host today. I'm joined by my very special and your regular co-host, Jeff Salzman. Hi, Jeff. Hey. hey. <laughs> Anything new in the last week? Uh, yes. I told you the last show that I got my wife's old MacBook, uh, All right. polycarbonate MacBook, and you suggested getting extra memory for it. Oh, yeah. I ordered it, put it in there, and it... It is much faster. Uh, did you max it out or just take it to four? Uh, I'm, I got to four now. I mean, if I wanted to go to eight yeah. and 16, I may consider doing that. I'm just going to use it primarily just to get used to the Mac environment and maybe do some iOS uh, developing. Four we'll will see. probably be just fine for whatever you're doing. You you probably would only need more than that if you were one to, like if you really started using it. Like if it was your main computer, like you know mine, and you're like doing podcasting and you're running you know five six programs at a time and stuff like that. I'm impressed with the battery length on it. I mean, if I wanted to say podcast from outside the house, yeah, it's it's nice light. You know, it can easily do that. Yeah, I would use it for that. Still I was a nice playing computer. Playing with GarageBand, huh? that was neat too. And was it easy? Just had to pop the um, bottom case off. To put the RAM in? Uh, yeah, it was a couple screws, and it came off, and I saw I could replace the hard drive if I wanted to, if I wanted to get an SSD yeah. drive someday. Yeah, we talked about that. That would be the next you know, cheap upgrade that would really make a difference. Well, the 250-gig SSD drives are like, really cheap. Like less than 100, 100 bucks now, now right? Yeah, they're cheap. So that's a consideration. Well, so what's new with me is first I'll say um, I've been out in the garage a lot lately because I'm getting ready for the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast which is uh, in two days, Saturday and Sunday. I'm actually getting pretty excited about it. So I'm in the garage. I, uh, you know, I used to do this in, with the Retro Computing Roundtable I, a few different times. I did, a, I think, a couple times in the garage and a few times like out back on the deck. Yeah. I did the podcast. I heard some birds in the background yeah. earlier. So you may hear some noises. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm in the garage sitting at the table, and it's just kind of a real nice day. And I've been cooped up inside at work all day, so I thought, yeah, it'd be nice to sit out here. But um, so the other news for me, of course, is the Vintage Computer Festival, and I'm going to be there. I have a little, you know, one table and a little booth, if you will, and um, we're going to do a podcast, and um, and then we'll talk about that next time. So link in the show notes again if you're able to make that. If you're anywhere in a driving distance, you ought to consider coming out on one of the two days: Saturday, May second; Sunday, May third, in the Greater Atlanta area, Roswell, Georgia, which is near Alpharetta, where I live, north of Atlanta. So yours is even closer to you. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's literally the venue, which is an old CompUSA, is, um, well, you know, decent traffic 20 minutes away. So right. not bad. Like 10 miles, I don't know, if that eight miles maybe. 
can't wait to get some feedback about that. And I heard they meet, met their Kickstarter goal too. Oh, they did. You're right. We should should mention that. Are they just just a little bit over? Which hey, doesn't matter. All that matters is they made it. I think it was like 1580 or something. Top of my head. And you well, supported cool. them, and I did too. I got yeah. The I put little some in there when kit. I saw. You know, they're so close. Let me put some in there, and hopefully, other people would hop in, and they did. So that's good. It's a good thing they work hard. So. Well, anyway, so let's get up when you get there, right? (laughs) (laughs) So let's take it away with the shoe. Okay. The uh, History of Personal Computing podcast is your biweekly virtual guide and audio to the history and development of arguably the single most important technological advancement of the last 40 years, the personal computer. We also have a companion website that contains the articles we feature for each machine, plus our show notes. Rushing you along, of course, right? Because <laughs> yeah. we're trying to keep the show reasonably short. Cause yeah, because you spent... have to get ready for the VCF Southeast. Yeah, so I understand the, that kind of pressure. I'm spending the rest of the evening um, just getting everything to the end of the garage ready to be loaded. Because then right after work tomorrow, I'll be driving up to the venue. And I'm not going to take everything because then Saturday morning I can finish up. Because, you know, again, I live right here. I'm just driving distance. But I want to take some stuff. Anyway, we generally discuss systems in a date order by tiers, and tiers in reference to the three tiers of personal computing, originally the desktop, portable, and handheld, but now they are the laptop, tablet, and smartphone, and maybe you might say the watch, who knows, it's going to continue to evolve. We approach and describe each system like that of a museum tour guide. So on this show, we're covering two systems. And essentially, the theme we're calling it is the rise of cheap color personal computing, even though we have already covered some other cheap color personal computers, yeah. such as the VIC-20, and stands out very, very broadly. But they were on the cusp. So we've moved solidly, solidly into the early 1980s, and the days of the hobbyist computers have almost entirely passed. Now was the time for personal computing to start really coming into the mainstream. Computers were starting to be sold everywhere at all kinds of retail outlets, The Commodores, Apples, and Ataris had their strong and weak points, but there was still room for other competitors. The chief point of competition often came down to price during this time. Price was a key factor, but availability and advertising also played a major role. In both cases on today's show, two foundational personal computing companies introduced color computers for the first time, and with that, the color personal computer marched closer to commodity status. And um, you know what? What? I think I put me first, but actually you take it away. <laughs> okay. Since I'm hosting, usually, you know, we, we swap up. Not so take problem. it away. You know, I think it actually, I think this one came in just a wee bit before the Spectrum anyway. Yeah, you're right. Well, the one I'm going to be talking about is the Tandy Radio Shack TRS-80. Make sure I get them all in there. Color computer. Yeah, that's like the um, full name. Yeah, we covered all bases. Um, uh, Radio Shack actually started to produce a telephone-based TRS-80 video text terminal for industry using uh, newly released Motorola MC6847 video display generator, or VDG, uh, the, the chip. And that's kind of analogous to what Commodore did with the VIC-20 and the VIC chip. Um, they wanted to build a platform around the display generator. Um, so they wanted to create this video text terminal for video text was an information service at the time. So they built this terminal, and the project actually completed, and it was discovered by the time it was done that it was basically a color computer. So it soon became the the TRS-80 color computer minus the modem that came with the Videotext terminal. 
but with a normal run of computer ports added to it, like a cassette port, joystick expansion, the Videotex terminal did not have that. That was all added to the design. And the, um, it's still the TRS-80 terminal, the Videotex terminal, was still sold throughout the early line of the TRS-80 color computers. So it had a little bit of uh, legacy in that sense where, you know, it, it started out as one thing and then they just figured, oh, we'll just make it a computer and get into the color computer market. Um, and it's other interesting, you know, that because you think that they'd be, yeah, you know, their purpose would be we got to we better hurry up and create a color computer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think Tandy really just tried different things that weren't quite on the mark, but then they realized that. It's something else, so they, you know, yeah. they go with something that fits the consumer level because, you know, they're a consumer-level store. Right, right. Plus, they had a lot of their own backing to do that. But, yeah, Videotex was a thing for a little while, and now it's not a thing anymore. But yeah, um, they, they actually sold the Videotex for the same price as the, the original color computer. It's just they each had a few things different from the other one, but it was still the same price. You can have one or the other. Um, although you can buy the color computer and spend an extra $30, and, and get uh, Videotech's capability into it. But anyway, um, I'll get into the systems, but uh, basically the TRS-80 color computer line actually spanned over one decade with its swan, swan song in the latter part of the 1980s after the release of the color computer 3. However, Radio Shack was already selling IBM compatibles through much of the 80s, and the cost-to-feature ratio of that line, the, the IBM compatible line, um, helped focus consumer attention away from the color computer. But they did have a long run. Um, they actually released three different versions of the color computer. The first two models, the color computer, well, it's actually called the color computer. We call it the color computer one now in hindsight, but it was the color computer and the color computer two. Um, they both shared similar features. They both had a 32 by 16 character display. It's really odd. Maybe not as odd as a VIC-20, but still odd. Um, 256 by 192 pixel graphic screen and it was uppercase only you think by now you know at least commodore had lowercase at least sort of but uppercase only it's what you were stuck with for the first two versions of the color computer but you know i i didn't go into this detail when i talked about the zx spectrum but it sounds very similar to the zx spectrum from yes, around the it, same time frame those uh you know specs there yeah there there's a little bit of hook between between the two um you know, distant cousin-wise, they had some. They, I think they had similar concepts, mm-hmm. um, even though they, they had different other parts. Um, the color computer one and two both used a, 60, a Motorola 6809E microprocessor running at 0.94 megahertz, so it was a little on the slow side. Uh, they both came with 8K color basic ROM which gave you some decent basic commands, but if you wanted to do advanced graphics, you could opt to buy the 16K extended color basic for it. They both supported what was called program pack software cartridges, and, and whichever, it, it worked on both models, the, the color computer one and two. So you, you bought most of your software cartridges, you stuck it in the side of the computer, and you know, your application was running. Um, for an additional cost, as with most other computer systems, you can have cassette or disk drive storage to store your own data. And they only hooked up to television sets since they lacked composite or RGB out. So you would always get that television interference that was common at the time when you had to hook things to the antenna connector. And just like the ZX Spectrum, the earliest ones. 
Yeah. So and and that's probably a cost saving thing for them. And, right. and remember, it was it was based the original one was based off video text. So you know that was going to hook up to your TV anyway. Mm-hmm. So they probably didn't change it too much to make it a color computer. They just gave it better I/O capabilities. Now some of the differences: the original color computer sold uh, for three hundred ninety nine dollars. And it was around between 1980 and 1983. It did go down in price over those years, but the the original color computer one reign was between 1980 and 1983. It had a silver black design. It was mostly silver plastic with some black accents around the keyboard. Um, and, and the color scheme is similar to some of the earlier TRS-80, uh, like Model uh, 3 and Model 1 line. I think the Model 4 was actually beige. Um, it had a rubbery chiclet-style keyboard. There's how it was similar to Sinclair. And it came with 4K standard, or you can get a 16K version or upgrade and a 32K version or upgrade. And 1983 rolls around. Between 1983 and about 1986 or 7, the Color Computer 2 was available. It was actually in a smaller case, similar style. It was keyboard with like an area behind the keyboard that housed most of the internals. Uh, but it was an off-white color, like a beige color. Uh, and it had real keys. Uh, they called them the melted keyboard. It was real keys, but it looked like if somebody heated the rubbery keys on the color computer one and they melted down and spread out to each other slightly, it, it had that look or effect to it. Um, the color computer two was also part reduced from the original color computer one. It ran all the same stuff. It was basically a color computer one with a new cost savings d- design. Um, so they reduced the amount of parts uh, with custom integrated circuits. It started out as a 16K machine when you can upgrade it to 64K. And the Coco 2 keyboard, it's called the Coco 2, Coco 1. Uh, Coco 2 keyboard was released as a separate item for those who want to retrofit their Coco 1, get rid of the rubbery chiclet keyboard and put newer keyboard into it, you know, one that has real keys. And the Color Computer 2 started out at $239, and that's with the 16K. So cost reduced. Um, and, you know, that was that more. was pretty cheap. That was game console, about the same yes, cost. it was. And then and that makes, you know, the game packs were about $20, $30, $40. I don't think too many were $20. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're talking about the same pricing scheme, um, a cheap gaming-type device, and then cartridge productivity and game packs for about the same price as Atari cartridges were at the time Hmm. Uh, or even Nintendo cartridges considering the date range Uh, and then later on um, about 1986-87 actually I think it came out in the 1987 catalog um, was the Color Computer 3 as I mentioned before this is their swan song this is where they kind of put everything they can into the project and to continue the line. Uh, it came in a case that was very similar to the Coco 2. It's kind, you'd have to look at it to tell it apart, you know, if, um, if you saw it from a distance, you have to get closer. Uh, there was a few extra keys on the keyboard, but it was similar to a Coco 2 keyboard. And by this time, even the Coco 2 had bigger um, keys that basically had a, had a full throw to them. Um, the, there was a newer hardware design with the Color Computer 3. It had a newer video display controller. It was called the GIME, G-I-M-E, which stood for Graphics Interrupt Memory Enhancement. So it was a newer system, but it could still run Coco 1 and Coco 2 software with near 100% compatibility. 
Another thing they added, which some people thought was a little too little too late, was composite and RGB output along with the TV output. It still used the 6809E microprocessor, which was capable of running at the same 0.894 megahertz for compatibility, or it can run at near, about twice the speed, 1.788 megahertz. Um, but it came with 128K RAM, which was quite a bit. Um, and it was expandable to 512K. And you can go up to 2 meg RAM with some aftermarket hacks. Um, people have discovered that, you know, if you do, if you wire things right a certain way, you can have up to 2 meg RAM on that. Plus, they um, increased the graphics capabilities, uh, multicolor text. Uh, you couldn't really change the text colors too easily on the other models, but for the Color Computer 3, you can have individual colors for text, individual backgrounds, and other graphic attributes like blink and, and stuff like that. And the high-resolution graphics were expanded on the Color Computer 3. You can actually have different modes. You can either have um, a horizontal resolution of 160, 256, 320, or 640 pixels. But then you can also have a height of either 192 or 225. I don't know exactly how the modes compared. If you can just have pick one of horizontal, pick one of vertical, and that's your resolution you're working with. Hmm. Plus, for graphics, it supported 16 colors at once, which is pretty nice. Out Having of the Commodore 128 yeah. didn't do that. Yeah, out of a palette of a 64. So you were able to use one quarter of the entire palette at, at any given time. I didn't realize I didn't realize it sold that long so i mean basically you know now i think about it you could walk into a radio shack sometime in the late 80s and now tell me if this was your experience it seems like for a long time i always remember walking into a radio shack in a mall and then you know they'd kind of have a table fairly near the the middle entrance of the mall and they'd have a color computer sitting there with a game yes and, you know either in auto mode or you know demo mode or you know kids would be playing it or something for the longest time that was like the, the, you know, how a Radio Shack looked. Yeah, they'd be typing <laughs> 10 print Jeff is dumb, 20 go to 10 and make it scroll, yeah. <laughs> or, but they always would have like um, like the maze, you know, like the Pac-Man clone yeah, or something like that Yeah, there'd be game going. in there. The, the, the joysticks for the uh, uh, the Coco were a little weird. That it, yeah. uh, it was not a self-centering stick. It just rocked in any, one, any direction. It had 360 <laughs> degrees of movement. So you know, it's it funny it. that they put that, you're right, and they'd have those on display with the game, and it was kind of a turnoff on buying it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, here's here's what we have for joysticks, and I'll play yeah. Pac-Man. Yeah, uh, no, no. thanks. <laughs> it doesn't self-center. I'll go to the so. game room, thanks. <laughs> That's right, the arcade was just two doors down. At least it was in my mall. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, and, and in the mid to late 80s, you you might see a Coco 2, and then a, little bit, a couple years later, you think you still saw the Coco 2 there if you saw the Coco 3 instead. So, I mean, I already had my, I was already established with my, you know, favorite personal computer at the time. So I can't really say much about the experience other than the fact that if I walked into a Radio Shack, I knew I saw a color computer, but I couldn't tell you at the time if it was a two or a three or yeah. even that they had a three. It wasn't until a lot later that I learned that they had a three. Hmm. But you know, it, it's, it's Radio Shack. They were able to leverage your market presence to produce an affordable color home computer and keep it alive, despite yep. some of the minor shortcomings. Like this presence right? in advertising. Exactly. Um, although the most obvious shortcomings were the no lowercase for many years. The Coco 3 actually introduced lowercase letters. And relatively high prices for the program pack software they continually promoted. Uh, while 
while other systems at the time had disk-based software markets, which it's easier to produce disks. Um, and you know the push for cartridge-based software is what helped actually kill the TI line with their solid-state software. We talked about that before. After a while, people when people think cartridges, they think oh games. So if you know any productivity pack cartridges, um, or you know productivity program pack cartridges. Yeah. I mean how how. Which is well, which actually yeah. in reality for a low you know the type of machines they were for how much power they had it was actually a better thing. It's it's like the same thing we're talking about taking you know like your older MacBook and putting an SSD hard drive in it. It improves its performance. So loading your stuff from a you know it's basically the same thing. Well, yeah, kind from a of, cartridge, but it, from a cost standpoint, it's like you know they did they had prices kind of all over the board. It, productivity cartridges. Oh, they were really more. expensive since you got into yeah, the productivity they stuff. Get, they figure they're going to hook you in for the business stuff. Meanwhile, well. The Coco 1 and Coco 2, and to some degree, the Coco 3 could not hold up as a productivity machine against its big brothers, like the Model 3 and 4, which were still on the shelves for the you know first part of the 80s, uh, and the Model 16, the more business-like ones. And that created an affordability gap between the TRS-80 lines. There was nothing in between. You either had like the Model 4, which sold for $1,100, or Model 16, which sold more, some business class computers. And then you had the $200 Coco 2 yeah. or $300. There was nothing in between, and, and there wasn't any market. You, you either had this cheaper gamey-type system, yeah. which really didn't do much productivity. I mean, you could you could actually run a business on a Commodore 64. I knew somebody who did that. Oh, yeah. and, all, and there was good software for that. And it was a good price range. You could still do productivity. But it, and some people argue with me, and that's fine. I like to hear other people's feedback on it. But you couldn't quite do that with the Coco 2 because there really wasn't much of a market for disk-based software. And, you know, if you got a disk drive, you used up your cartridge slot in the side. I think into that. I think what the reality was, and with the Commodore 64 and many other lower, inexpensive, you know, family kids computers, let's call it that, that the reality was there's plenty of adults and, and business people that used them for really productivity stuff. So there's people that ran their stores with them and different things. But the perception and how Radio Shack marketed the color computer was kids computer. Yeah. No, the, the, yeah, the Color Computer 3 solved the problem of the affordable productivity because it had the lower case and it had lots of features and stuff. Uh, but it may have been a little too late in the home computer timeline for them. Um, besides, they, they had the IBM compatibles and the Tandy 1000 IBM compatibles coming out. So that those started breaking that $1,000 barrier, getting close to that affordable productivity that you know matched a standard, you know, popular standard, IBM compatibility. That's business. So, if somebody goes in there with seven hundred dollars, they could buy a fully loaded Co- Coco Three, or they could probably get started with a Tandy One Thousand HX and run, you know, software that's available for IBM compatibles because they had yeah. a disk drive. And this is my own personal thing. One little, one little thing I didn't care for about the at least the Coco One, Coco Two. I didn't know if the Three had this. They had that psychedelic flashing cursor. Huh. I never <laughs> you knew turn that. it on and it blinks all these colors all the time. <laughs> just, I guess they want to really sell the color stuff. Well, it it yeah it yeah it's like the wild colors they did in the late '60s for television, right? It's like this is so unreal colors, but you know I have a color TV and I'm going to show it off. <laughs> Look at all these bright colors. 
<laughs> anyway, um, a little bit of legacy of the uh, the color computer. Uh, there were some clones that were based on similar hardware. Um, there's a British ver- British based Dragon 32 and Dragon 64 actually had the same CPU and video display processor combo and had a similar architecture. It was close to, but not exactly, Cocoa Computer, but um, it, it was a, a British thing, so I don't know what Radio Shack sold in, in, uh, in England for um, the Cocoa stuff, but I bet you the Dragon series had um, better popularity. Um, Brazil had the Prologica CP400 color and the CP400 color 2, which was uh, a, basically a clone. Uh, Mexico had the micro SEP, which is a system that was introduced by uh, the Secretary of Education there. So they were trying to you know, produce something that would be for educational use. Taiwan made the Sampo color computer, but it was so close to the original, it was restricted from U.S. sale due to ROM copyright. And even Tandy themselves had, their, had a cousin clone. It was called the MC-10. It's uh, a smaller computer, very similar to the color computer, but it has a Sinclair-like form factor. It was tiny, hooked up to your TV, and had a little rubber chiclet keyboard to it. And let's see, more of the legacy. Um, While there were certainly fans of the Coco 1 and 2, as with any other vintage computer system, there is still an active user base for the Coco 3, and in the form of the OS 9 operating system which is, I believe, a multitasking operating system that runs on many 6809-based computer systems. Think of it as like Linux for 6809. Um, it, and in a way, it's kind of like the way that, I'm gonna, I know I'm pronouncing this wrong, Geneve, Genevieve fan base for the TI-99. We talked about that before. The TI-99 still lives on with you know, additional third-party enhancements. Well, the Coco 3 still lives on. Unfortunately, there's so few of them out there, they're, they're expensive, so it's kind of hard to... Oh, you yeah. know, back in, um, I'm going to say that, you know, when I first started, like, really collecting computers, and I did my newsletter and all that, so 93, 94, 95 time frame, there was a, uh, there was a newsletter just for OS9 users, and I don't remember what it was called, but um, I believe the guy, I think maybe he contributed a couple of articles, but, you know, I'd give him a copy of Historically Brewed, and he'd give me copies of his uh, newsletter. Okay. And I think yeah. there's some ads in, in the back of Historically Brewed for that. From what I know of the OS 9 operating system, it still works really well on the Coco 3. And if you happen to have a Coco 3 but don't know what to do with it, look into OS 9. There's, hmm. there's a big support thing for it, and it's still capable because it has the high-resolution graphics and it hooks up to RGB monitor. Um, it, it still has some cool uses, cool features. That, you know, not too many people have them, but there's still an active user base for it. They're keeping it alive uh, more so than they're keeping alive any Coco 1 or Coco 2. And uh, Jeff, I added that link there as far as fans, and it's a link to the Glenside TRS-80 Color Computer Club in the Chicago area. And I remembered about them because I did go to the Vintage Computer Festival Midwest in the greater Chicago area. I want to say it was 2011. So I've been to that. And, and you know, I don't think we mentioned this last show, but you and I are talking about going to the one this year. Yes, we did mention a little bit. We're, um, I'm, I'm for it. Yeah, I think I think we're gonna make it happen. So, so anyway, there's a link to them, and they're and they they were they participated in that, and I guess they're they'll do it this time too. But on their webpage, they say 
the 25th annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest. I think it's sort of a a joke that they're always doing the last one. Every year is a new last one. I I do remember hearing that joke before. But they have dates for their event, for that event in 2016, April 23rd and 24th. Better get there. It's the last one. Well, that's next year, but I guess, (laughs) I assume they're going to be involved with the VCF Midwest. I think they just had recently, didn't they? I guess so, yeah. It must have been. Yeah, there it is. April 25th and 26th. So, so last weekend. Yeah, so um, so I guess they'll have one next year. But I think they also... Or maybe it's just... I think they did the one in 2011 at the same time as the Vintage Computer Festival Midwest. So I don't know. Maybe they'll be there too. I'm not sure. But there you go. There's a, there's a, a group of hardcore <laughs> Coco fans. And that's where you'll learn an awful lot about the um, Coco 3 and the OS 9. I think they actually had something... I know last year they had... Uh, OS uh, nine. That goes a motorcycle. <laughs> oh, I thought I thought it was your stomach. <laughs> so you you got to eat before you start. And well, if you really want to see what the Coco computer is all about, and to see that flashy blinky cursor, or you want to know what the Coco three is about, you know, in case you want to buy one on eBay because they're available there. We'll get to that then. Uh, your best bet is Mess as an emulator. I've talked about Mess before. It's a kind of an all-system emulator. Um, I found that there are other standalone Coco emulators, but many of them have not been updated lately, and some even only run in DOS, which may not work well on Windows 8, since I think Windows 8 completely cleared the DOS platform. There's no real true emulation of DOS anymore, so you don't know if these DOS emulators are going to work. Um but Mess is a good standby. Uh, you get pretty good compatibility out of that. It does a lot of stuff. It does. Once you get it all configured. And you know what? So if we go to the Vintage Computer Festival Midwest, not to be confused with the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast, which is coming up this weekend, then maybe you can show me more about Mess. Certainly. We'll I want to get together and we'll do, an emu- we'll do an all-night emulation fest. That'll work. That would I'll be fun. Bring everything I have, and we'll just get mess running on your MacBook. Make a mess, bro. And <laughs> yeah, make a mess about <laughs> make a mess of mess. But yeah, once you get it all configured, it's it works out well. All your emulation in one spot. They, but they're for most of the other computers. You know, you may find better standalone emulators, like the ones that I post about on our uh, historyofpersonalcomputing.com website. Wow. Very good. That's a lot. Of, that's 10, 10 years of Cocoa Computer in what, 15, 20 minutes? Maybe a yeah. little time. All right, let's go across the pond. All right, that's the show. No. All right. <laughs> that's it. All right, so let me, I'm scrolling up. So now let's talk about, we're going to talk about, and there's a lot of similarities, a lot of differences too, but between these two computers. So yeah, across the pond, we're going to talk about the Sinclair ZX Spectrum, which of course is how the English folk uh, say it. So basically, and Don, is a motorcycle going to come down my street again? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so in 1982, Sinclair Research Limited was selling a whole lot of ZX81 computers, but those sales were starting to decline, even with an expansion into North America with a partnership with Timex. Sinclair's computers got okay reviews, but it was their price that sold them, as their poor keyboards and minuscule RAM and performance classed them almost permanently as toys. Um, many stops. said, what's that? Or door stops. <laughs> yeah. Many said that for only a little more money, a person could buy a much better featured Commodore VIC-20. Sinclair's company knew this too and began work on a successor, sometimes called the ZX81 Color, and now I'm going back to American anyway speech, 
or ZX82 in development. They had to improve their product fast. It needed to be their next generation and drastically improved while keeping the miniaturized internal components, sleek design, and a low price point. The Spectrum was ultimately released as eight different models, and the line always sold pre you know, pretty well, but mostly uh, in the UK, even though uh, apparently it did really well in Spain too. But primarily, it, you know, it, it dominated in the UK. Uh, Timex marketed, marketed it in North America as they did with the, um, the, the ZX81. It's the Timex Sinclair 1000. And uh, so it became the slightly different Timex Sinclair 2068. So in some ways, an improved version of the original um, My ZX Spectrum. My uncle had Spectrum. the 2068. But, um, but it didn't sell very well in the U.S. So well, I know one that sold. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, the company sold out to Amstrad in 1986. And uh, lots of reasons, probably, but this was probably partly due. And now the guy's come down my street again. Why? I guess he's just like warming up his engine, hasn't been run. Um, this was partly because of the video game crash of 1983, but also due to the failure of the Spectrum's replacement, the QL of 1984, which I'm not sure if we're going to cover the QL. Maybe we will. Not sure. No, but if you watch that uh, video that <laughs> yeah. recommended, you'll know about it. Sinclair leaping over computers and stuff. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. So to talk about the computer itself, um, the original uh, ZX Spectrum came in a very nice little attractive small package. It was black. It had a rubber keyboard and a distinctive little rainbow motif along the bottom right corner, like a little uh, diagonal line going across. It originally sold for between 125 pounds to 175 pounds, 1982 uh, money. So I don't know. Top of my head, that's like... Uh, Two hundred dollars, maybe in nineteen eighty-two, pretty cheap. Yeah, two hundred, two fifty. Yep. Entry level, two hundred dollars or so. But you know, nineteen eighty-two dollars. It was based on a Zilog Z80A CPU, running at a pretty decent three and a half megahertz. The original um, model Spectrum had sixteen kilobytes of ROM, and had either sixteen kilobytes, which was the entry level price, or forty-eight kilobytes of RAM, which um, again for nineteen eighty-two was very good. Yes, it was. And, you know, they had to do that because that was part of a lot of the complaints about the, you know, ZX81 and all those too. Uh, you know, limited the black and white and the RAM and, and power and all that stuff. Um, like the color computer, video output was only through an RF modulator as the machine was designed to be used with contemporary console or portable color television sets. The Sinclair Basic Interpreter, along with fundamental system routines, were stored in ROM. The original Spectrum's chiclet keyboard was marked with basic keyboards, and it served as shortcuts in programming. And the the ZX Spectrum gets lots of um, note has a lot of notoriety as being many uh, English people's, you know, Britain's entry level to programming for many people. <laughs> <laughs> I hear the motorcycle. I'm gonna start throwing rocks at the guy. <laughs> Sound output was through a little beeper on the machine and it was capable of producing one channel with 10 octaves. Later, some software was available to produce two channel sound. So now we'll talk about the models. Um, so Sinclair, the company, directly produced three models with the issue one, um, which were the 1648 kilobyte machines, then the ZX Spectrum Plus in 1984, and then the ZX Spectrum 128 in 1985. And the only real difference in the Spectrum Plus, you know, from the original, was uh, the case, which did also bring along a better better keys on the keyboard. Um, 
so if you look at it, you look at like the Sinclair QL, the you can see the the styling is very similar and the the keyboard is is very similar, which it does look nice. I'm not sure how well it worked, but it looks nice. Um, and okay, so in my notes I say it looked cool and had a QL style case. <clears throat> yeah, it was still pretty powerful too for for its yeah size. for the time. I think people can overlook any problems with the keyboard if there were any. The uh, the new features of the Spectrum 128, which is the third incarnation, include obviously 128 kilobytes of RAM, but yet it also uh, added three-channel audio, MIDI compatibility, an RS-232 serial port, and RGB monitor port, plus 32 kilobytes of ROM that had an improved basic editor, and then also an external keypad. And the case grew larger too, and it expanded sort of long ways out wider. Okay, um, made it really so that was a major improvement on the 120 with the 128. Um, the Amstrad would go on to produce five more upgraded models, and uh, what I found to be the most significant feature of these was that they added a built in data cassette, you know, data set on the right hand side. And there were some other a other few upgrades. years behind Commodore and the pet, right? <laughs> yeah, and that was the primary input mechanism was cassette with these. Excuse me. Yeah, when you get well, when you get to 128k uh, on cassette, <laughs> yeah, it must it, it must have been 1500 baud or faster to to. Uh, that, that's a lot. I mean, well, my, you know, and my, I didn't look into peripherals all that much, but I'm assuming they probably. I guess there was disc drives available later. Sorry, I didn't look that up. I just got to assume I'm there sure must have been. Sure, something could have so. been done. I mean, considering the the era, I'm sure something or maybe some something fancy like a wafer tape or or something like that. But but I know cassettes were um, were very prominent in the UK market, especially with most of all the, the the computers in the early 80s. So maybe they were a little behind getting the um, floppy disks like than the Americans. Yeah, I remember it took 10 minutes to load a a game on the Commodore 64 that nearly filled up the available RAM, which was like 30, 35K, 37K after all the overhead. But the Commodore was also notorious by having a really bad, slow serial port. Well, so the maybe that port went through it. a different Oh, you're right. But disk drive, yeah, disk okay. drive was slow. But 10 minutes, I remember I bought it, and it took forever to load. But it worked. Um, but I don't remember what the data transfer speed. They, they, they probably had a faster data transfer speed on or at least a recording speed. Cassettes were were rated in bald speed, but they never really told you what that was. But yeah, 128K, that would have been a lot to load up on cassette. But yeah. you're right, it's it's an easy thing to use, easy peripheral to use, and you know you can get cassettes anywhere. Right. You can erase those old Duran Duran tapes and you know <laughs> put put that 128K program on it. So some some of the good of the ZX Spectrum was that its impact on. Uh, Britain primarily on their computer, you know, um, people in Britain was that it was essentially like the Commodore 64 of the UK and that enjoyed many, many years of success. And it, it grew huge, uh, fan base with lots of support from many, many magazines, user groups, uh, game producers, um, shows. And then even now there's lots of nostalgia around it. It's probably, I, I would say it's it's roughly one that, you know, it has, like the Commodore again. You know, the Commodore fanboys. You had your yeah. Spectrum fanboys. And the bad, so these are like two, two little things we added. We're trying to say the good and the bad. I couldn't really find any. Now, I never used a ZX Spectrum, so I'm, obviously if you ask somebody that was really, um, you know, 
used one. I uh, used a Spectrum, not not the. I used that um, Timex Sinclair, that twenty sixty eight Spectrum. Yeah, and it was like a color version of the one thousand, but it did have you know a lot more memory. It was a lot more stable. Yeah, you know you didn't have that memory pack, and it was it, it worked really well. I was impressed for the price point. It was a really good computer. Right, right. And I can only assume that the, the the later models like the Spectrum one twenty eight and stuff. Just got even better. So, yeah, probably can't find anything too bad with it because they hit the proper price point. Right. And so for what I found, it uh, it was a great little computer for a gr- good price, and it had it delivered a lot of good years of fun for the owners. And um, sure, there's things that could have been improved or maybe think some features people might have wanted or added or what, but, but you can't really, you know, especially as time went by, you have to sort of look at it from the time it came out and, you know, Right. I mean, it's like comparing a Commodore 64 to an Amiga. You can't say, oh, that's a piece of garbage compared to the Amiga. Right? The 19- <laughs> <That's> <laughs> true. Because it's not. I mean, it's 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 relative for its time and cost and, and other things. So, okay. The Legacy. Many credit it as the machine which launched the IT industry in the UK. The ZX Spectrum helped earn Clive Sinclair knighthood for services to the British industry. So he is actually known as Sir Clive Sinclair uh, for quite a while now. I'm not sure what he got that. I think we mentioned it maybe in another uh, episode. We may have. Now, the uh, Spectrum had many copiers and clones and just downright ripoffs, with uh, much of it happening in the uh, the former Eastern Bloc countries. Especially in the Soviet Union, there were known to be over 50 such clone models. Wow. They were distributed through poster ads and street stalls. Okay. Yeah. And also, I, I found one a uh, one on eBay, so I did as the link. Fans? No, there aren't none, because no one really <laughs> yeah, liked. No. It's a very silent machine. No, no hot air comes out of it at all. <laughs> no one really liked the ZX Spectrum, so I couldn't find any fans. No, actually, oh, okay, those fans. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Case fans. I, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Actually, it was one of the most popular British computers of its time, of course. And there's a large following of fans online now with tons of resources, including one of the largest online gaming centers on the internet. So there's a link in the show notes for the worldofspectrum.org. So check that out. Lots of information there, lots of games. So um, some people even question the legality of, you know, the, the ROMs they have there or whatever, you know, because of copyright and all that. You're going to have that. But well, nowadays, I think most people... On, it's who, who really worries anymore? Well, because most people have accepted the concept of abandonware. Or you know, when companies go out of the business, does someone really own it anymore? Yeah, it's like the community claims squatters' rights. Yeah. The um, the Spectrum is affectionately known as the Specky by elements of its fan following. So you'll hear that. And there's a couple more links in the show notes. That's so how the... you tell them apart. The first one is the Indiegogo. These are very recent, which is a uh, an- another, um, oh, what do you call that? Crowdfunding. Yeah, it's like yeah, Kickstarter. Indiegogo is more like a tech Kickstarter type thing, where Kickstarter can be anything. So this just ended in the end of January, and they got 150% funded. They raised 155,000 pounds to build. And I think this is Sir Clive Sinclair's, um, yeah, I believe he did this. But it's something called the um, the Sinclair ZX Spectrum Vega. And it's basically a new modern version of the Spectrum where you can play games from it, like a little gaming oh, platform. Oh, I remember hearing about that now, yeah. 
And uh, so I'm not going to go over it too much, but you can check it out. Oh, it says one person can't wait until June. So maybe it will be, uh, it'll be, it'll come out in June. So hopefully we'll find out more and uh, maybe we can buy some. I wonder if it'll work in the U.S. Um, I don't know. Maybe if you put it on the left-hand side. And, <laughs> and there's some videos here. Oh, here's a video with Sir Clive Sinclair. So you want to gonna, you're going to want to check that out. All right. So then the other, and then coincidentally, and that the other link is a very uh, another a Kickstarter, another crowdfunding project that just ended, I think, the end of March. And this is a Bluetooth ZX Spectrum, recreating the Zinc the Sinclair ZX Spectrum, and basically it uh it's a keyboard that looks like a Spectrum, and it works with iOS subsequently Android Windows phones and tablets. So it's just a decorative Bluetooth keyboard. Well, I think, yeah, but I think what the deal is, is that you can, you can actually play the games and everything like on your iPad or oh, your Android okay, so tablet. It probably comes with like emulator software or something that gets installed yeah. on your device. And so oh, you can neat. use it like the computer and then it outputs. So um, there's also, you can find some articles outside of Kickstarter here but I, I want the link to this Kickstarter. It has all the keywords and functions on the key. So see, lots of big fan base, lots of uh, fanboys out there for this. Yeah. And what I do here lastly, okay, lastly about emulators is I just did a Google search and so I, I uh, included the Google search because there's there's a few good ones here. So if you just, I just did a search for ZX Spectrum emulator and it brings up World of Spectrum first off and then apparently they have a uh, a page about emulators. Well, the emulator that I posted on the history of personalcomputer.com website also supports Spectrum emulation. The okay. um, the eighty one that that's at chutney.com. Okay. It's on the website. It, it will support uh, Spectrum along with the other ones, um, and I like that one. That was a really nice one. But yeah, so this page, this site's got a ton list of emulators, but also just whoops, yeah, quite a bit. It. But also just going down the Google search list, there's. Um, there's ZX Spectrum 4.net for Windows. There's um, Spectacolor. There's JSS Specky, which is a uh, JavaScript. Let's pull that one up. So that means yeah, it's just, I, I yeah it works a, in your browser. Oh, look, there it goes. I have a ZX81 emulator for my Android. I didn't check to see if they have a color spectrum emulator. Oh, look, that's cool. And so this one's JavaScript and it's right in your browser. Oh, that, those are actually, you know, considering the speed of computers these days, the Java-based ones are great because yeah. they typically come pre-configured with software that you can try right away. Um, now, they don't work on mobile phones very well either because uh, the, the different Java environment, uh, if it even has a Java environment. But, yeah, the Java emulation is really nice if you just want to get a quick idea of what it looks like. Um, but if you want to go deep into it, yeah, find another type of emulator. So that's it. I think we did a pretty good job on these two machines without going too long. So um, so we still have our eBay links to talk about. We've got yes. one listener feedback we'll read. And we're doing good on time. Wonderful. So why don't you go ahead with yours? Okay. Um, I picked, as, as usual, two eBay auctions. The first eBay auction is a, a Color Computer 1. Just to give an idea. Oh, hang on. Let me open the link the right way. There we go. It is, um, it sold for about $60. It came with a matching um, cassette recorder and the two joysticks, a game program pack. And this one 
has, does not have the Checo keyboard, but it has what's called the melted keyboard. If you look at the key shape, they're very low profile, but it looks like if you put plastic that can't hold up into the sun outside and it melted, like think of a little Hershey chocolate wedge melting yeah. down and it's like the, it, the, the, the top stays the same, but then the bottom kind of spreads out and melts out. That's what they call a melted keyboard. Well, that's really odd. One I of never the reasons really why I picked that. this is, is because of that melted keyboard effect. Um, whereas the Coco 2s later on came with the full-throw keyboards that were taller keys. They didn't have that flattened effect. But this one is in fairly decent shape for its uh, age, but you can see it's it's that typical early Radio Shack TRS-80 gray and black um, look. Yeah. And... Fifty nine thirty five is actually probably a fair price for it. Uh, there are some that actually sold for less. There's some that so, sold for more, depending if they come with the original box or if they're in immaculate condition, or if they come with other accessories like rare accessories. But this will from all your neighbors, you, is it? North Versailles, oh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh well, I guess <laughs> I could have gotten my. I had one of these once, and I should have never gotten rid of it. Um, but I have a Coco too, so I can still experience the same thing. I just won't have that, you know, fancy older original look to it. Yeah. But a Coco two, which, if you just want to experience the early color computers, a Coco one or two will both work. You just you know watch what kind of memory it has in it. Um, but they'll both use the same program packs and all the other accessories. A Coco two will probably be sold for a little bit less because they're more common. So you can probably get a Coco two for about you know. 30, 40 bucks if you wait and look around. Now, my other link is the Coco 3. I tried to find one. That, this and then, oh, this is a neighbor of mine, too. Yes. Yeah, so. Mansfield, Pennsylvania. I, I, I didn't try that. <laughs> it just huh. came up that way. This one I picked because it is very nice condition. It's 128K Color Computer 3. You can see how the keyboard is similar in style, but they have cursor keys and a, a, I think a couple function keys is what was added, and the escape key. And this one sold for $75, which is about in the middle. These things can sell for a lot more because they still have a, a strong following. Um, but this one comes with two manuals. And it looks like he's showing some damage. It looks like this had some heat damage. And it's still sold for $75. So that gives you an idea that people want these things. Um, They'll, they'll take them with a damaged case. One of the pictures shows, looks like the plastic melted around the cartridge slot. So I wonder how that affects the cartridge. Hmm. Oh, well. Um, but, yeah, that's you're going to pay more for a Coco 3. But if you, you'll have some Coco 1 and 2 compatibility with this. If, you, there's, a, if there's only one you want to get and you want to experience the full line, you know, get the Coco 3. I don't think you'll go wrong with one that just simply says it works uh, because you'll be able to do a whole lot with it and you can still do a lot with it today once you follow the OS 9 group and get OS 9 installed on it. Okay. Those are my two. And, okay. So I picked, of course, two uh, ZX Spectrums. Two? Yeah. I see three here. Yeah, well, I'll explain the last one. <laughs> okay. The, um, Not a problem. Because so, I was kind of surprised that you could... Um, now you could find these fairly easily. Now one thing is I did keep it a worldwide search, so it did come up. You know, so um, so the first I think one here found many more. It, yeah, is the ZX Spectrum, which I because I assume they don't work in the U.S. anyway. 
because of the power and all that stuff and the out, the video output. Yeah, that would be a problem. You'd have to go with the Timex Sinclair ones if you want anything for the U.S. So this one sold out of uh, the U.K. It's a ZX Spectrum Plus with joystick, 10 games, recorder, all boxed, rare. Sold for 71 pounds, which is about $109. It would have been about $42 to ship to me, which seems incredibly cheap if I really wanted to buy it. And for me, it was twenty six ninety nine. Really? Oh, oh no, wait. That's, okay, that's I'm sorry. Pounds, I'm reading. Yeah. I'm, okay, forty one seventy one. So yeah, it, forty of it's probably just getting across the the ocean. But but there you go. It looks clean. It's got boxes. It's got. I mean, this is a system you know you could get a hold of and start playing around and have a yeah, spectrum. Yeah, really. This is all rolled up, ready to go. So um, then the next one. Okay, then I found this one. I thought was interesting. So the other one is a Soviet clone <laughs> of the. Uh, ZX Spectrum, never used, uh, new old stock boxed. It sold for, oh wait, it it did sell, didn't it? Um, oh, it's ended. Maybe it didn't yeah. sell though, but it came out of the Ukraine and it would have been about $50. Oh, look, zero available, five sold. So yeah, they did sell all of them. Okay. For a hundred bucks a piece. That's pretty cool shipping. though. Um, Spectrum, S-P-E-K-T, backwards R-U-M, right? <laughs> But again, all completely, uh, you know, generic and wrapped up. But it would only work, I guess, on their power. You'd have to convert it. You'd have to figure something out. It's probably 220. Well, it depends on what the adapter end is. If it's just a DC input, you could probably get by with it's 24 volts DC. Wow. Okay. But it's so pretty you need neat to. Volt um, power supply to drive this thing. It's pretty neat to see, um, you know, this stuff. You know, a lot of the stuff that's coming out of the Eastern Bloc. And especially the Soviet Union. Actually, if you click on this person, what else they're selling? Well, considering the, the time period, yeah, that's about all they had is to make their own versions of stuff. But a lot of this stuff, you know, you wouldn't have been able to get, you know, until somewhat no. recently. Um, okay. So then lastly, what I did is I just found an active listing in this case because um, you can, you know, find a, a ZX, I just can't help it. I want to say ZX, ZX Spectrum plus two. So here's one, 128K original computer box plus games fully working. So it's 55, 55 pounds, which is about $85, buy it now. And then it'd be like $36. So here's an example of, I could get, um, you know, if I really want a ZX Spectrum, I could get this one for about a eh, hundred bucks. Yeah, $110 or so shipped to me. And yeah. it comes with some games. And it's got the data quarter. Yeah, built in because it's a Spectrum Plus 2. You know, so if you really want to get a hold of these, you can. Again, you'd have to um, figure out something about actually using it, though. Does it say it has a power thing? Plus power adapter and aerial lead, not pictured. Aerial lead. That's... Yeah. No manual, I'm afraid. Box is a bit tatty. <laughs> Joysticks and uh, original Spectrum games. So pretty cool. Just All right. Just need a PAL television. Keep it moving. Or, or though you can get PAL to NTSC converters that can make these things work on our TVs, but you lose some vertical resolution. Yeah. So, Jeff, I'll be closing out the show here, and I just got done talking with the eBay. So why don't you read our, excuse me, our email from our listener. Okay. And as we do with most of our other email, we tend to read them verbatim. So, um yeah. Who is this person? <laughs> we, we don't have oh, names on these. Oh, 
<laughs> no, it's just one. It's actually just one. Oh, it's one. Okay. It's yeah, it's Scott from there. Bellingham, Washington. Okay. Scott says, hey, guys, just wanted to write in and say I'm not having any problems getting the show. It's always good news. I was able to get them from the RSS page, as you mentioned. Heard you talk about it on the show as well. My problem was that I refused to quit uh, using Opera 12.7 until it's pulled from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> Opera Opera's pretty good. I can understand the feeling. Uh, but unfortunately, support is fading as evidence with that uh, They problem. don't update it anymore? I don't think they do. Uh-huh. Um I still run it from time to time to test things, but yeah. I don't use it actively. Um, but I know it has its following. It's like it's like somebody who owns a Sinclair or Commodore sixty four. Um, I didn't think original. I didn't think originally of using Firefox because it seemed like an odd thing to happen. And this is referring back to getting the um, the show to download. Yeah, I could load the page fine. The only problem is the links for the MP three simply weren't visible. Uh, strange. Anyway, if I use Firefox, they show up. Uh, so thanks, he says. Uh, he just listened to the show, which included the TI-99 slash 4A, his very first machine, and I look back at it, and he looks back at it finally as we, we all do, the machine we personally owned. Uh, I'll continue yes. to read in his voice. It was the beige, though I love the look of that silver unit. It was magic, though, typing in programs and saving to my very own media cassettes. Um, felt I didn't uh, know amazing people now don't understand what just yeah. what saving data meant yeah uh, saving to a cassette it's like, yeah this holds my program i typed this yeah. I, I know that feeling it's i still remember that feeling um yeah creating a directory on like a floppy disk and then yeah catalog- i remember right. you know, on apple II, the first time i ever did that and you know doing the catalog command and seeing it there it's like there it is it's mine <laughs> And then, and then there's fast forwarding and waiting for the tapes. Anyway, I'll, cons- I'll still continue in his voice. Um, I specifically remember the books titled Micro Adventures. I have a few I, of those. I, yep. They were genius. You would read this action book, and when a part in the plot came up, like Defuse the Bomb, there would be a program listing, and you'd type it in, and it would be a basic bomb puzzle thing. Fantastic for a 9 to 10-year-old. I had Parsec. I love that game. I remember also, and my favorite was called Microsurgeon. I heard of that. I didn't play it myself, but uh, um, back in his voice. No doubt Nostalgia Clouds, but it was amazing to me. It wasn't score-based, which was new, then almost daring, and I never was into getting a high score. Um, You viewed an operating room, and various problems would pop up. Then you would head into the body to clear it out. Yeah, they had Microsurgeon on various uh, platforms, didn't they? I think think so. Or, or something similar came out. Anyway, continuing with him. I also enjoyed the show. Sorry, I don't have the number in front of me. Um, where you talked about, talked to some friends who lived and worked in Salt Lake City, Utah. I was born in a place called Tooele, just 30 minutes around a mountain. But later when I next got the 800XL and then the uh, 1040ST, both Atari, um, my sole software source, period, was the Software Hut. And that's <laughs> actually a store that's been around many places so when we would go into the city i would get very excited to go to the redwood road and see what was new they had a computer with a couple big spinners of floppies where you must or where you could sit down and copy shareware which was awesome um i must have talked to to one of them um no doubt i owe one a big thanks uh as well as my mom brought me in brought me home something i'm sure they recommended as a gift um she had no idea what what is what. I'm going to break here real quick. I, I know that feeling, too. You know, parents at the time didn't know what their kids wanted. But I do remember going into stores and getting shareware. I did that with my Commodore Amiga. 
and it's fun just going to see what's new and and coming home with a batch of new software to play with. Anyway, I'll continue. Okay. It was a basic-based game programming language for the ST called STOS or STOS. You might look it up, but it changed my whole life, he said. Uh, I was never a math person, therefore programming uh, person, but desperately wanted to make games. Well, this had a sprite editor for which an art type was amazing for me. You can make and then play sprites easily and also do a lot of other great things with it. So, yeah, the ST was good for artistry, too. Um, I remember that myself. I keep jumping in and out of voice here, don't I? <laughs> um, uh, back to him. I, I would literally give my left arm to get those discs with my old games just to see them run one more time, you know. And Now back to my voice. Uh, yeah, we all know that feeling. Um, and that's probably why I have so much junk in my, my basement right now because I want that feeling for a lot of things. Anyway, to finish in with him, uh, he says, well, that's a lot of writing if you're still with me, and we are. Uh, thanks for the shows, and take it easy. Scott from Bellingham, Washington. Thank you very cool. much, Scott. That that was a mouthful. I hope I didn't mess anything up here in reading this. I was jumping in and out of voice with my own personal opinions and along with yours. But you know, we all know we all know the feeling. It's it's nice to be able to relive some of the, the stuff in the past. And we're we're glad to get it. We're glad to get your letter. Yeah, we we love these kind of stories. And uh, I never had a um I never experienced like a, a store to go into really to get like shareware or anything, but in the early days, this is on my Mac. I, I subscribe. Well, my Commodore 64 too. I subscribed to a number of um, like you'd receive a disc once a month, and yeah, uh, and I got I shareware those. that way. I, well, I, like, I hit users groups that. Yeah, I subscribed don't to. Don't copy that floppy became. Which is a lot of fun. Day. So that was always exciting getting the packages and getting the diskettes and stuff for both my Commodore 64 and my my Mac. This is all in the early 90s. Mostly in Germany, because of course I was in Germany. I couldn't go to American stores too much. I mean, we had the, the ones on post. All righty. I think we did a good show and we're slow over an hour. I think we're good. We're going to wrap it up. So um, our next show will again be in just one week. It's going to post on Friday, May 8th. Jeff will be interviewing me and we'll be talking all about the VCF SE, which is again this upcoming weekend. Our website is historyofpersonalcomputing.com. Follow us on both Twitter and Facebook. You can send us feedback at feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. And please tell someone about us. Twitter, Google+, Facebook, whatever social networking kind of stuff you want to do. And also definitely watch uh, Twitter this weekend for people posting pictures. And I'll try to do some of that from the VCFSC. And uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah. And on Sunday at noon, Jeff and I... Um, we're going to try this. Yeah, participating in a dual podcast with Randy Kindig. So check out his podcast, Floppy Days. And, uh, you know, and maybe he might even post that before we post our next show in a week, which we'll be talking all about the show. And I'll be piped in through remote. Yeah. Skype. Oh, it's the Skype. Yeah, just like we're doing it this way. Somehow we'll get you in. So that's it for this episode. Episode. See you again soon. Bye-bye.